Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to episode two, series two of Battleground, our weekly exercise in hand-to-hand combat on the field of combat in the contest of ideas. I'm Nick Cater, the host of the show with new guests and new information every week on ADH TV, the home of robust conversation. You can watch us as we stream live or on demand at ADH.TV or better still, download the app absolutely free on your smartphone or smart TV. Well, later on, I'll be joined by economist Judith Sloan to expose the myth of the so-called gender pay gap and the shallowness of the gender pay industry who are driving it. But first to renewable energy. Last week, I showed you a disturbing video of the construction of an industrial scale wind turbine plant in the beautiful Yass Valley, 300 kilometres west of Sydney. Thousands of tonnes of concrete are being poured into the ground. Scores of kilometres of new roads have either been completed or are under construction, turning this once beautiful landscape into an industrial zone. And this is just the start. The federal government has decreed that we need to install 40 giant wind turbines every month, not to mention 22,000 solar panels a day and 10,000 kilometres of transmission lines if we're going to reach our 2030 target. Well, the notion of replacing fossil fuels with energy dilute, land-hungry, unreliable alternatives like this with a short lifespan is crackers. Seven years ago, Daniel Andrews presumptively declared that Victoria would be carbon neutral by 2050. His vanity target became law in 2017 without any costings by Treasury, let alone any consideration of the incidental damage that might be caused to nature and local communities. Well, indeed, it would have been impossible to make such an assessment since there was no practical plan of how Victoria was going to reach that goal other than replacing coal and gas with renewable energy. Now, at last, the Victorian administration is having to confront the impossibility of their target. In an official review has concluded that replacing coal and gas generation with existing renewable energy sources alone is an implausible prospect. To achieve 60 gigawatts using only onshore wind and large-scale solar could require up to 70% of the agricultural land 
or four times an area of greater, the area of Greater Melbourne, the review concluded. Well, sadly for the people of Victoria, this rare moment of bureaucratic clarity is fleeting. Rather than searching for other low-carbon sources of electricity, nuclear, small modular nuclear reactors, for example, the review team recommend continuing building wind turbines offshore. Electricity produced from offshore wind turbines is almost twice as expensive as that from land-based turbines, $94 a megawatt hour compared to $49 megawatt dollars a megawatt hour according to the Department of Energy's calculations. Maintenance costs are 20% higher. The expected life is 15 years for offshore turbines compared to 20 years on land. A 5 megawatt offshore turbine typically requires more than 1,000 tonnes of low alloy and electrical steel, 500 tonnes of copper, 70 tonnes of non-recyclable plastic and a couple of tonnes of magnet. The damage to the natural environment, the thing we're supposed to be saving after all, is not inconsiderable. A 2022 review of studies on environmental side effects of offshore wind reported that the impact was negative in 86% of cases. More than a third reported that the damage was high. Australian studies find that the threat to bird life is significant. It doesn't take much to imagine who will come off best in a fight between a 10-tonne turbine blade and a 45-gram orange-bellied parrot. And then there's the whale problem. Since early December, more than 20 large whales have washed up on or near the beaches in the US Atlantic coast alone, where offshore wind construction is in full flight. Local environmental groups are blaming the spike of, in beachings on the noise and disruption of heavy construction. A scientific study published in the journal Endangered Species Research two years ago examined the potential disturbance of low-frequency noise from the turbines on the clicks, whistles and pulse calls that pods of whales make when they're migrating to help navigate obstacles in their path. The research concluded that further studies were urgently needed to inform appropriate strategies for future wind energy development. Quote, the area of potential effect of acoustic exposure can extend far beyond the immediate vicinity of the proposed development, the report said. Alteration to the physical and oceanographic habitat could have cascading impacts, it warned, on the food chain. Well, the risks to the natural environment, the boiling of pristine coastal skylines, have turned Bob Brown, the founder of the Greens, into an opponent of offshore wind. He says it's in the wrong place. It'll ruin the view and kill endangered birds like the Tasmanian wedge-tailed eagle and the white-breasted sea eagle that live on the island close to the wind farm that he's opposing. Well, uh, we have alternatives for renewable energy, says Bob Brown. We don't have alternatives for extinct species of birds. Well said. We should be looking at a whole suite of those options and determining as a community which to develop, not leaving it to developers who have profits in mind. Well, that's one of the most sensible things I've heard Bob Brown say in quite some time. The, yet the, that the federal and Victorian governments are persisting nonetheless with the development of offshore wind in the face of so many practical challenges shows the power of the monomaniacal obsession with wind, solar and batteries that the, the threat of global warming has induced.
Not every centre-left administration in the world is quite as blind to this reality, however, as the Victorian and federal governments. In Canada, the centre-left Liberal Party under Justin Trudeau is backing nuclear small modular reactors. The technology Chris Bowen laughs off is way too expensive. The question is, expensive compared to what, Minister? Construction of Canada's first SMR is underway, in line with the government's all-option approach to reaching its emissions target. And the government's total commitment so far is 1.1 billion Australian dollars, a fraction of the figure the Victorian government plans to spend on wind, solar and batteries. A report by PwC estimates that the total investment required to build the Victorian's government target of 13 gigawatts of offshore solar generation will be $29 billion, far more than what they'll be spending on all other sources of renewable energy put together. Running costs in 2040 will add another $8 billion. It's going to be harder for the government to persist with the lie that renewable energy is cheap based on those figures. Federal and state energy ministers would do well to follow the recent example of Shadow Energy Minister Ted O'Brien and take a fact-finding tour to Canada before embarking on a perilous sea adventure. The first of the so-called gender pay gap, which, if you believe Sam Mostyn, is a break on our economy and an impediment to our progress as a country. Who is Sam Mostyn? Well, she's an Australian lawyer, deputy chair of the Diversity Council of Australia, former advisor to Paul Keating, a sustainability advisor, climate change and gender equity advocate. In September last year, she was appointed by the Albanese government to chair the new Women's Economic Equality Task Force. The job of that task force is to provide, quote, independent advice to the government on a wide range of women's economic equality issues. So we get where she's coming from. She's part of that woke army recruited by the Labour government on comfortable taxpayer-funded stipends to lead Australia towards a sustainable, fair kind of future and purge us of the stains of racism, sexism and transgenderism. We get that. Joining me to discuss Mostyn's contribution to Australian uh, public debate so far is economist Judith Sloan, the contributing editor at The Australian. Contributing economics editor at The Australian, I should say, Judith. Welcome. Uh, you've had your share of government appointments in your time. You were a member of the Productivity Commission and the Australian Fair Pay Commission, and you served as deputy chair of the ABC. I take it there's no offers yet from the Albanese government, but, but what can we judge about this government's agenda from the appointments it makes to these quasi-independent advisory bodies, task force, commissions and whatnot? Well, <clears throat> I mean, I think the big picture is that it is a sort of reinforcement of identity politics. So you have to establish, uh, you know, um, downtrodden minority groups and you have to keep up the uh, evidence, so to speak, on the, those particular groups being downtrodden and therefore needing to be helped by government. Um, it's a sort of circular thing. I, I, <clears throat> I think Sam Austin probably is not so much setting the agenda as the government has an agenda. They go and get someone like her, uh, has a task force. My guess is the task force contains all sorts of the, the likely appointments and uh, they... Uh, they uh, send reports back to the government and some of the recommendations they take up and some some of them they don't. Um, but, you know, here's the, the funny thing with the women issue is that really by any 
by all the measures, women um, have done very well in the Australian labour market and over a very long period of time. Uh, I mean, the gender pay gap is, is silly, um, but even if you took the gender pay gap, uh, <clears throat> which they uh, define as the ratio of average full-time weekly earnings of females to that of men, uh, the gap actually is as narrow as it's ever been. But somehow that sort of uh, <clears throat> was something not worth celebrating. Um, they had to sort of move on to whinging about other things. Mm. Well, because, you know, the big the big progress in this was made 50-odd years ago, wasn't it? We'll come to Sam Mostyn's claims about the so-called gender wage gap in detail in a moment. But... Um, First, let's clear our heads and ask what the gender pay gap actually is. The principle of equal uh, pay for equal work of equal value was established in 1972 in Australia in a test case by the Australian Council of Trade Unions. In Britain, the Equal Pay Act was passed in 1970 after a strike by sewing machinists at the Ford Dagenham plant, which drew attention from around the world and was celebrated in the feature film Made in Dagenham in 2010. Let's watch a, a clip from that movie. Here it comes. Oh, no. Women always come second until we get equal pay. This needs a leader, someone to inspire the girls. What? You can do this, and you should. Now we've got all this unrest at work. Unrest when you actually come out and strike. <laughs> this is about one thing, equal pay or nothing. <laughs> Everybody, out! What's going to happen to do with me? Get the banner up. No, no, go! I know the feeling. I don't think you appreciate the situation. We need to tread carefully. You're the best man in my cabinet. I often say that. That's a freak. What's going on? This is being on strike. You run out of cash and you end up screaming at each other. And you tell her to get her finger out. It's gone on long enough. The time has come for all women to say enough. We will not accept this any longer. for women is right. That's my girl. What if Mrs Castle says no deal? How will you cope then? Cope? We're women. Now don't ask such stupid questions. 50 years ago, right? And um, uh, it, it's been enshrined in several uh, laws since in both countries. Uh, but then we moved on to something new, didn't we, under Julia Gillard, which was no longer equal pay for equal work of equal value, but this gender pay gap. Uh, what do we make of that? It's more of a kind of theoretical, ideological push, isn't it, rather than a practical push that will help women? <coughs> well, just at a sort of, you know, macro adding up level, it doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, there's a lot of sort of compositional effects going on there. And you probably shouldn't use averages because uh, for male earnings, they will be dragged up by a very small number of very high-paid people, right? So you, you do Statistics 101 and you learn that the average can be extremely misleading. If you were to work out the... Uh, well, if you do work out the pay gap in terms of median earnings, so that's the... Uh, 
the level below which 50% earn and above 50% earn, um, that's actually narrower again. But, um, you know, the thing is that, uh, you know, economists, we can kind of uh, look at the factors that uh, affect earnings uh, like um, <clears throat> like uh, industry occupation, qualifications, job tenure and the like, and basically it all falls away. There's nothing much to see. In other words, <clears throat> for a variety of reasons, including competitive reasons, uh, there really is very little evidence of direct discrimination in the in the workforce, and and that I think is not in keeping with the sort of woke um, identity poli- politics agenda. Yeah, I mean the, the thinking is, I guess, behind this argument that there's something more than just the market forces setting wages; that there's some deep entreated, enshrined uh, prejudice or or something that's going on. Um, According to the latest data uh, on the website of the, I think it's called the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, which was established by the Gillard government. I know, it's spooky. (laughs) According to the data on their website, for every dollar a man earns, a woman earns 87 cents. That represents a gender pay gap of 13%, according to their (laughs) calculations. Uh, The good news is, as you say, that figure is coming down. The the GPG, as they call it, was over 18% in 2014, but it's been in the 13 to 14% range since the outbreak of COVID. Interestingly, Judith, the rate varies depending on where you are in the country. So in Tasmania, it's just 6%. South Australia, it's the next lowest, 7.8%. That's followed by the ACT on 10%, New South Wales on 11%, and Victoria on 13.4%. Gap in the Northern Territory, 14.1%, and in Queensland, 146 Now, it's when we move to the West that we hit some serious inequality. Uh, misogyny and uh, inequality uh, is, is rife there, apparently. Step forward in shame, Western Australia. Your gender pay gap is an ignominious 22.1%. Is the conclusion we, we draw from that, Judith, that uh, discrimination against women is most rife in WA? Well, no, and I mean, in fact, that's kind of worth pointing out, isn't it? That, uh, <clears throat> I mean, there, of course, the industry affects absolutely overwhelm it because it's not actually a very big employment sector, but uh, you've got some very high paid uh, jobs in the mining sector, and they are overwhelmingly held by men. Now, maybe it's a pity that more women don't put their hands up for, you know, 28 days on and 28 days off up in Pilbara doing pretty tricky tricky and dangerous jobs, but uh, some do, but the majority are men, and that therefore affects that figure. But the point is that um, that's got nothing to do with discrimination, and the interesting thing is that, uh, and I think you probably do this occasionally, look through the comments uh, of pieces you write in the paper. And, and people, you know, have pretty, you know, they've got a lot of common sense, haven't they, Nick? Mm. <clears throat> and as someone said, that if it was true that you could, so, several people said that, if it was true that you could legally play women less for the same job, then why would you employ any man at all, right? Yeah. You know, competitive forces would sort of fix this up, right? Yes, I wouldn't be in this chair now. I wouldn't be sitting here now. No, no, no. (laughs) It goes back 50 years. We had the Conciliation Arbitration Commission hand down two principles. First of all, 
um, <clears throat> same, uh, same pay for same job and then same pay for jobs of equal value. So all that has been settled for many, many, many years. But as you say, um, you have, they have to kind of develop a new angle to look at this to keep the narrative going. Mm. Well, it, that takes us neatly to Sam Mostyn's press club speech last week. I know you sat through it and endured, it, in, endured that. Uh... Only because I was having lunch, yes. yes. <laughs> so did I. Let, let's hear what she had to say, first of all, about the gender pay gap. Despite many improvements for women, there is comprehensive evidence that in a number of areas, progress is slowing or has stalled. It is clear that gender inequality is not only holding women back, as I have said, but it is now a break on our economy and our progress as a country. The full-time gender pay gap may now be at a record low, but women still learn less on average on every indicator. There's an 11, almost 12% gap on the hourly earnings pay gap. There is an almost 14% gap on the full-time weekly pay and a staggering almost 30% gap on the total annual taxable income between men and women. Yeah, it's always the way with these progressive causes, isn't it? Whatever progress we may have actually made coming from darkness into light, there's always much, much further to go. Uh, and uh, it seems to me this is almost one of those manufactured causes. But, but what she said there I, is, is, is probably accurate on the aggregate level, as you say, but it doesn't actually really mean much in the real world, does it? Well, you know, I, I think there's a philosophical difference there. <clears throat> Um, I think some of these feminists want women to have children and then very shortly after park them in childcare centres uh, and go back to work full time. And anything less than that means that they're being held back. Uh, whereas an alternative point of view is that women seek to drive a balance between family and work. Um, family often, in many cases, will um, be as important, sometimes more important, uh, than work. Um, and I think basically there's an objection to uh, people having that view. So, um, you know, Sam Mosson, for example, denigrates part-time work mm. um, and talks about part-time work in particular industries. But the truth of the matter is that, <clears throat> again, and I can quote figures too, <clears throat> that women have much higher job satisfaction than men, and that has been true over a very long period of time. And what we call underemployment, so that's part-time workers who would like to work more hours, is much more a feature of male part-time work rather than female part-time work. In other words, um, <clears throat> the majority of women are actually happy with their, their um, part-time working arrangements. So, you know, two people, I guess, can look at uh, Mont Blanc and see a different picture. <laughs> um, but, you know, I try and look at Mont Blanc and think, well, that's what it looks like objectively. <clears throat> they will just choose the particular sort of crags and angles to suit their argument. Mm, well, that's right. Let's listen to a bit more of what Sam had to say and unpack her argument. Women's workforce participation has risen significantly in the past 40 years. It is one of the great stories when you look at what has happened since that 1984 budget. We are more employed, there is no doubt about that. But those gains are all reflected in part-time and insecure work. 
Here's the work that women do. 96.6% of hours worked by child carers is done by women. 86.9% of hours worked by registered nurses are done by women. 79.9% hours worked by primary school teachers are done by women. So what's she getting at here? I mean, women choose these, <coughs> these jobs, presumably. Is she suggesting that we should, you know, it level up the gender balance in childcare, in teaching and so forth, that it's 50-50? Or what's the other solution? Is he suggesting we pay childcare workers, work, workers as much as um, fly-in, fly-out mining engineers? I don't know. We're, we're, has she got a solution? Well, presumably not. I mean, and I do think it's an irony that uh, in the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, like Gender Equality Agency, <clears throat> that of the top eight uh, senior executive positions, seven are held by women, and the only bloke seems to be doing a sort of technical job in IT. Uh, you know, so I think that's a bit ironic for an agency which is supposed to be promoting equality, but there we have it. <clears throat> I mean, she's wrong to conflate part-time work with precarious work, as a matter of fact. Mm. Um, in fact, job tenure has uh, been increasing quite dramatically uh, in the past decade. And, in fact, the most rapidly growing um, <clears throat> type of employment in, uh, in the labour market is uh, permanent part-time work, and that's mainly, mainly a female phenomenon. So... I don't know why she thinks denigrating those jobs is useful to her agenda because many women like those jobs and also, by and large, they're not bad jobs either. So uh, we might, <coughs> might, might ask, what, does, what is Sam Mostyn actually arguing for? Well, here's her, her wish list. Here's what we want. We want a universal, high-quality early education and care. We want more paid parental leave. We also want those women with the most entrenched disadvantage right now to receive our attention. We want to allocate funding for an upfront and immediate pay rise for all early childhood educators in a culturally appropriate manner. We also want safety, opportunity, skills acquisition, education, gender neutral or, and gender affirming pathways into decent jobs and careers, parenting assistance, access to high quality early education, childcare and care, access to unbroken solid superannuation. The removal of the highly rigid gendered norms, support in caring for ageing parents when these women are in their 60s. We want a lot of things and we've got to have it costed and we'll put our full suite of recommendations to the government. If you'll indulge me, I want to turn to the arts. We don't get to look at women's art. We get to look at a lot of men's art. A lot of women's art is in the vault. Gender equality should be as normal as drinking water. Well, wouldn't that be nice? Thank you. Yeah, well, as normal as drinking water, wouldn't that be nice? It's quite a wish list, isn't it? All, all of it, of course, uh, seems to demand more government money. It's always the answer to everything. But um, it, what's yeah, happening more, more. here? <coughs> it, 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 they just... I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I noted in my um, <clears throat> column on this was that uh, there was a very important Swedish study. Now... If Sam Mostyn uh, lived in Sweden, she actually wouldn't be whinging too much because they do have a lot of those things, right? Uh, they have extraordinarily generous uh, 
paid parental leave. <clears throat> the blokes take paid parental leave too. Um, <clears throat> they have sort of every intervention uh, that a feminist would want. But here's the thing. There's still a gender pay gap in Sweden. Uh, and what they find is that women do not want jobs that involve long and unsociable and unpredictable hours, and they don't really like jobs that involve a lot of travel, right? And there is a penalty in the labour market. So there you have the nirvana of interventions, a lot of money spent on this stuff, <clears throat> and yet uh, women still make their own personal choices, and <clears throat> that has some consequences in the labour market. So... Um, I mean, I do think in many ways, Nick, this is a story about personal freedoms and the fact that, you know, women should actually be applauded for making their own choices um, and they shouldn't be denigrated for making those choices. If they want to work part-time as a primary school teacher or in a childcare centre, they, should, they shouldn't really be denigrated by someone like Sam Mawson, who's had a very privileged career. Yeah, I mean, that in the end, you know, this is about freedom, isn't it? Freedom to choose mm. what you do with your life. And uh, uh, many women uh, uh, would actually choose to spend certainly the early years with their children. Uh, some, you know, as long as the children are at school, they, they would like to be at home. Uh, these people get a rough deal these days, don't they, in terms of public policy? Everything is geared towards the working mother. Mm. There's, there's childcare... <laughs> Uh, you know, subsidies that you don't get, obviously, if you if you stay at home, look after your own kids. Uh, we don't have the tax sharing arrangements in this country, which might make the tax situation easy. Uh, do you think... Well, and it's very... It's all about centre-based care. Yeah. Um, so the idea that you might have a nanny <clears throat> or even share a nanny, which is also not uncommon, you see, that attracts basically no government subsidies at all. So... It has to be centre-based care. It provides scope for the unions to unionise the workers. <clears throat> and uh, but you know, a lot of a lot of parents will say that they don't really like um, centre-based care, particularly for little ones. So I do think it's really a, um, partly a story about freedom and restricting people's freedom of choice. <clears throat> I mean, the feminists have a have a sort of um, <clears throat> view that. If I say, for example, and as I did um, <clears throat> work part-time when my children were young, I was suffering a false consciousness, you see. You see, I was what I really wanted to do. I wanted to work full-time, but the social constraints and values had imposed this mistaken view on me. But um, I think what we don't take into account is what happens to the children. I mean, children don't bring up themselves, right? Mm. And it seems to me that for what might look like a short-term gain, we may be creating a cohort of problem children for all we know. So, you know, children want reliability, they want love, they want continuity. And I think um, parents should be those who judge how to provide that. Mm. Well, that, that's right. Look, finally, just if we could just touch briefly on the policy which... Dominic Perrottet uh, for the New South Wales <laughs> Liberals announced the weekend. Now, I actually like this, Judith. It may not be, uh, you know, oh, it, may not, it may not be perfect public <laughs> policy in, in many respects, but here's what it does. It, it's a rare piece of public policy in that it actually 
reward saving. It builds serious thought for investing for the future. Uh, you know, we can argue about whether it should be quite so heavily uh, subsidised by the government, but the principle of setting up some kind of uh, protected form of saving for your kids with a, a government uh, able to invest this in, in, on the terms of a future fund, getting a better return, that I like a lot, and I wish we had more of that kind of policy. Tell me I'm wrong. <clears throat> Well, I think you're mixing up two ideas, actually. And, and in one sense, I probably agree about having good um, savings vehicles because, in a way, we actually um, discourage savings. Um, so, for example, in America, they have the college funds. You'll often hear about college funds. And they are a tax-protected form of savings, which must be held in that account until the child reaches college age. So... I've got no objection to that. <clears throat> but this is something different, right? This is setting up a huge bureaucracy, right? Uh, isn't it, you know, it's the, the Children's Future Fund. Interesting enough, Tony Blair had one. Did you know that? It I was didn't. called the Child Trust. It only lasted about five years, which is one of the problems. <clears throat> so the idea is that, you know, the government puts in a bit of money, you put in a bit of money, you could put a bit more money in. And wait for this, it's got a guaranteed rate of return of uh, 4% per year, real. Mm. I'm wondering how I can invest. That's not bad. And it's going to cost the taxpayer $850 million over four years. That's when this all falls apart. So, yes, <clears throat> to having savings vehicles, which encourage people to invest for the future of their children, absolutely. But this kind of intervention is crazy. And then, you see, when you turn 18, Nick, you're only allowed to use it for housing or your education. Which is so fair So we're enough. going to have this sort of, <laughs> yeah, but we're going to have this phalanx of clerks. They could be women, in fact, um, checking that the 18-year-olds are spending that money on housing or education. That's ridiculous, right? So it uh, looked like a bit of a, 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 a thought bubble to me. Um, and uh, I think I'd be suggesting that Perrottet and his mates go back to the drawing board. Well, you're a harsh, you're a harsh judge, Judith. I know you're, I am a you're harsh woman. very fond of your own grandchildren and no doubt you're saving for their future, but uh, that's no doubt. this discussion, vigor, rigorous discussion is what we enjoy on this program and always enjoy having your perspective on anything. Thank you for joining us on Battleground, Judith. No problem, Nick. Well, sadly, it's not just Victoria that's being transformed by the renewable energy revolution. Vast stretches of the Great Dividing Range as far north as the Atherton Tablelands in Queensland are either under development or under threat. Stephen Novakowski is a filmmaker from Queensland who is one of the few people to be documenting what's happening to our rainforests and other natural areas. Earlier this month, he visited Lotus Creek in central Queensland, which has been slated for a 55 turbine industrial development with all the risks that brings to native vegetation and wildlife. Here's Stephen's report. Lotus Creek wind farm site um, and we've just found a koala. This is just incredible. It's so amazing. 
so really nice healthy he's just woken up actually he's under the tree here beautiful old growth remnant forest really healthy looking koala sitting up in the tree and this is the Lotus Creek wind farm site so we know that there's koalas here greater gliders great beautiful understory old growth remnant forest never been touched I can't, there's no woody, there's no weeds on the, in the understory. Beautiful, beautiful forest. And we're going to carve it up for a green renewable energy. This is just insane. This is what's happening. So all you people out there in the cities that are pushing through green energy, this is what's happening in North Queensland. We're carving up our remnant forests. What's left? The high altitude areas, the places that haven't been cleared for agriculture, urbanisation, industrialisation, and we're carving them all up now for a new industrialisation called wind. It's dawn here on the site of the proposed Lotus Creek wind farm. This is absolutely beautiful, pristine bushland, beautiful native grasses, beautiful untouched, never cleared eucalypt forest. We've seen eastern grey kangaroos, wallaroos, um, wallabies here, and we've seen koalas. We saw a couple of koalas last night just down the road a bit more. There's probably, a, I think, a very healthy, thriving population of koalas here. You can see over here, there's nesting hollows in these trees. These are old growth trees. Look at that, there's nesting hollows there. This whole area is going to be smashed for the construction of a wind farm. They're going to put roads through everywhere. A lot of disturbance, a lot of heavy machinery, a lot of people, a lot of cars. There's hardly any wind here from what we've seen so far. I'll be very curious to see what the wind modelling shows, but um, that sort of data is done by the private wind energy companies and never released to the public, so we don't even know. Here we are on the um, road between St Lawrence heading west through the there's one up there. There's another koala. Just up there on the right. Oh, yeah, look at that. Yep, yep. Bloody just hell. Seen another, They're just everywhere. Just seen another koala here. We reckon there's hundreds, if not thousands, of koalas in this area. This should be the great, this Queensland Great Koala National Park. This was the site of a, the, um, <clears throat> pet, the, the carnage of the um, koala pelt industry back in the 90s, 20s, and 30s before it was banned. Um, there's still koalas here, and there's a lot of them. Look, I've been all around Australia, bushland all around Australia. This is worthy of National Park. This is just outstanding. We've seen koalas very easily, night jars, frog mouths last night, macropods. We um, actually had a carpet python next to our tent this morning, or our tents. Stunning place, National Park, worthy of National Park, and we're going to carve it up for green renewable energy. It's a complete, a complete oxymoron. We're going to trash what is worthy of National Park into an industrial wasteland, generating, I reckon, way below the capacity factor of what the wind companies are saying in terms of wind. You can see there's not a breath of wind. We're at the highest point. Highest point. We've camped here overnight and there's been basically no wind. No wind.
Well, the impact of these giant developments is taking its toll on local communities in Queensland. Joining me now by phone from her farm in the Atherton Tablelands is Caroline Ems, the president of Rainforests Reserves Australia. Caroline, welcome. Could you give me a description of some of these areas where wind farms are either being built or are scheduled to be built? Okay, well, the latest one that's being built right now is, is Clark Wind, they call it a wind farm, but industrial wind development. Mm. And that is about 175 kilometres near Rockhampton. Uh, the thing is that is a 76,000 hectare property um, over 11 um, titles. This is, these are enormous proportions here that will be locked away as industrial sites. I don't think people realise uh, how big this is and how it's going to affect mm. the rivers, the streams, um, and this is just this is just one of them. So London is due to come out any day to see if it is approved or not. Mm. So it's pretty pillstone dead. If mm. No one can stop these things. Well, we've got some. No. We've got some uh, some video of Chilumbum, which we'll play as we're talking to you, so that the vi viewers can get an idea of what sort of country we're talking about. So uh, this is the sort of country we've been talking about, isn't it? Chilumbin, where they've got a project, massive project going in. This looks to me like basically native vegetation. Is, 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 is that right, Carolyn? Yes, it is. It's, um, well, they call it remnant uh, forests. But uh, look, I call it critical habitats of global and national significance. Um, these areas are rare and endangered, of varying different ecosystems. It will be an ecological disaster for not only our region, if this gets approved, but we'll just end up with a ring of, ring of steel all over uh, our region from Ravenshoe to Tully. And look, when a lot of people don't realise either um, that it will be an industrial site that blocks away the river to creeks. Um, nobody can access, access these sites. Now, we've called on the government um, to, I mean, state and the council, and we still don't know who is responsible for compliance. So, in other words, we've had reports that the uh, Evelyn Creek has been polluted, the wild rivers, because uh, we've just had a, a sediment runoff. And what's happened is this is with the Banyan farm, which has been just about finished. Um, it is, in, it, it has, it is now operational, but the sediment runoff and the contamination, maybe arsenic, other lead poisonings, um, we're called on an investigation yeah. by the council, by the government, and no one has taken responsibility for compliance with these wings. And, 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 and no interest either from the, the national press, uh, no interest from television stations like the ABC, uh, and no interest, interestingly, for environmental groups, you know, people like Greenpeace and 
the World Wildlife Fund, the usual people that are supposed to be guarding guardians of our beautiful uh, natural landscapes. Nothing from them, yeah? No, that's, that's right. That's, that's exactly right. So conservationists, now that we're awake to it and we realise this is, is, is such a destructive, brutal industry on our landscapes, that um, we're, we're hoping that green groups will actually start to realise this isn't going to work. In fact, it's just going to destroy our last remaining ecosystems of the Great Dividing Rains. I mean, this is, um, this is, this is, this is just ecologically disastrous. Okay. So yeah. it's, it's a function crisis of their own making. And, and as for our climate change that needs nature, it, it needs the trees in the ground for carbon sink. It's not going to address climate change. In fact, it's going to make it much worse. Yeah. Well, look, Carolyn, thank you very much for joining us on uh, on a rather crackery line there from the Afton Tablelands. I, I've said I will come up and see for myself. Having seen those pictures and heard from you, I feel I must. So you can expect a visit from me and we'll have a longer chat about this when I do. More power to you and, and your group there. The uh, And we'll put their address on the screen if we have it. Uh, it's www.rainforest. Uh, yeah. .org.au. So it's rainforestreserves.org.au. Nick, it's very important. Um, there's a, quite a few people in the groups that are calling on a parliamentary inquiry. The petition um, only has 22 days left, and and we've only got about 450 signatures. Well, people don't realise that we do need a parliamentary inquiry into this because. We've got another 160 proposals lined up. Mm. Well, look, we'll, we'll encourage people to go to your website to find that petition and to join up and also see much of the other, I think, quite shocking uh, footage you've got on there of some of these sites and the wildlife that's under at risk. Thank you very much for joining us on Battleground. Thank you for having me, Nick. Thank you. Well, thanks for the many hundreds of comments, emails and tweets that I've received over the last week. It's great to know that you're responding. Matt responded to, on Twitter to my column in The Australian, which pointed out the proposal for an Aboriginal voice to Parliament is the latest of no less than eight attempts to establish a representative Aboriginal body since the 1970s. Matt commented, great article. When the first seven attempts fail, do it again for the eighth time, but this time write it into the Constitution so that it can't be stopped when it inevitably fails again. I will vote no to a racially divided voice in our Constitution. Michael commented on a recent column I wrote about the need for urgent reform to the NDIS, which is on track to cost us $60 billion a year by the end of the decade. He writes, Excellent, excellent article on a very wicked problem. Delivery of governance services to the most vulnerable in an efficient, affordable and sustainable manner. It is hoped this opinion piece will be submitted to the NDIS review and digested by those tasked with recommending solutions. Tony writes, Bill Shorten left the NDIS as a ticking time bomb when we, and I guess he means the Liberals, 
were rid of you last time. Still ticking, but about to blow up in his face. Alan chips in, send him back to Beaconsfield. He was at least at his best then, apparently. And then there was this from Bob. I heard an interview with Shorten and he seemed genuinely surprised that people would rot the system. The left, bless them, always assume the best of people. They thought that if they left a great big bag of prawns out there in the sun, that the flies would stay away. Many of you responded to say that the NDIS is a big improvement on the ramshackle system it replaced, and I agree with that, despite its many faults. Sandra shared a moving story about her personal experience. I have a beautiful daughter, great mum of two young sons, divorced, a teacher, who was left physically disabled after a severe stroke at 48, three and a half years ago. COVID didn't help rehabilitation. She is paralysed on the left side, uses a wheelchair and is dependent on carers for daily living. We are fortunate to live in our wonderful country with the NDIS. However, after close personal experience, care providers should be more closely monitored in the case of high physical dependency clients. Procedures and protocols are vital, as well as communications and adequate carer training. Well, I'm sure you'll want to join with me in, in sending our very best wishes to Sandra and all her family as they deal with those difficulties. Well, my movie and columns about the dirty side of clean energy were welcomed by some and condemned by others. Peter wrote, the environmental costs of these so-called green projects is escalating along with the greenwashing of the devastation caused. When will we wake up? Writes Rachel, this article needs to stay in print for the next month and sent to all the schools and universities in this country. And then there was this from Catherine. The Rye Park experience will be repeated in every town and village you know in New South Wales. Those of us who live in renewable energy zones are besieged by developers of wind, so, wind and solar and transmission infrastructure. If you haven't been to rural New South Wales for a while, take the road trip, appreciate the scenery, quiet and in the quiet and in landscapes before it turns into an industrial nightmare. There were critics, of course. None of them seemed to want to challenge the substance of my argument. Uh, Mel J wrote simply, Nick Cater is a con man. Ralph was equally terse. This import from the UK is wrong about everything. While Ian Hurd wrote, Cater is not known for his support of the renewable energy industry. I'm guessing he doesn't have children or grandchildren. Well, actually, I have two delightful grandchildren, Ian, although I worry sometimes about what they may be taught at school about this kind of stuff. There was a little more sense from Andre, who wrote, the destruction of the countryside to accommodate these dinosaurs of the renewable scam is phenomenal, as you illustrate. Plus, when they reach the end of their not very useful life, the companies that installed them will the companies that be will the companies that installed them be responsible for removing them and restoring the damage like mining company has to do if any of them are still in business that is most likely the whole climate change ideology will collapse under the weight of real scientific knowledge before the wind and solar farms here have deteriorated to scrap so taxpayers will be up for the cost of removing the unsightly mess well, keep your comments coming, good, bad or indifferent. You can email me at nick.cater at adh.com.
TV. That's all for Battleground this week. Thanks to the crew here at ADH TV and my team at the Menzies Research Centre. We'll be back again next week. <laughs>